uh, godliness by grace. Godliness by grace. Colossians 2.23 to chapter 3 verse 14. Take a look at these uh, two verses in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, where it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Very, very simply, to boil those two verses down, they simply mean this, that it is grace that motivates your godliness. Grace motivates your godliness. And what's going to happen this morning as we unpack Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 14, we're going to see that our godliness is motivated by grace. Now, parents, I need to ask you a a question. You need to be honest, and I would encourage you to uh, interact with me on this one. Parents of small children, have you ever struggled to motivate your children to do something that is good for them on a consistent basis? Hey, What did you say, Dale? Not just, <laughs> okay. Uh, can I just see a raise? Have you ever struggled, parents, to motivate your children to do something that's good for them? Okay. Now, here's where it gets a little bit deeper, right? Parents, now, now you've got to be careful if you've got children in the audience. Shout out an area that was difficult for you to motivate them in. I mean, and if you, huh? Going to school. Okay, that's one. Homework. Huh? Going to bed. Chores. What kind of chores? A what? What's that, Jurian? Keeping the room tidy. Were you, were you pointing at Samara? Oh, sorry, Samara. Yeah, Dale? Chores? Dishes? Okay. Now, here's the thing. Okay, good. That, that's great. I, I, how... How did you try and motivate your children? Okay, now don't answer. Don't answer, don't answer. Okay. Um, I personally, as a father of three boys, have thought deeply about this issue. And I have tried a number of different motivations. And parents try different things. And here's, here's a number of ways in which you could try to motivate your children to do things that they should do because it's good for them, but they don't want to do it. Uh, here's, here's the first one, you could punish them, right? In other words, if you don't do it, I'm going to take away your, maybe your technology, right? I see there's a smiling kid over there, okay. Here's another one I've thought very deeply about, not necessarily tried it, is you could bribe them, right? I see Richard's getting a nudge there. If you do it, I will give you, Shannon, what did you get? It was Bronnen. <laughs> what did she get if she did what she was told to do? A dollar. Oh, man, I want to come and be in that family. Okay, 
So you could punish them, you could bribe them, you could, thirdly, you could threaten them. Uh, not that many parents do this. You know, they don't want to do something you want them to do. You could threaten them with death. That could be something. You know, one that's very popular in certain homes, you could threaten to kick them out of the house because they haven't done X. Or maybe they need to go and live in the garden or they go and live in the shed if that's what they want to do. But on one that's very, mm, is you can shame them. If you don't do what I'm telling you do, then you're a, Hmm. you're useless, you're pathetic, you're no good. I guess the question is, do these tactics work? Do these tactics work? Well, I suppose the answer is yes and no, isn't it? I mean, for some children, fear works. I better do it or, or else. For some children, bribes work. I'll do it and I'll get lots of dollars. I reckon Bronin's probably quite rich. <laughs> For some children, shame works. I better do it or I am a... But what you want for your children is you do want to motivate them because it's what? It's good for them. Because it's the right thing. It's a good thing. It's, a, it's healthy. That, that's the way it wants to work. But now here's the question. How does God motivate us, His children, towards godliness? How does God motivate us, His children, towards godliness? And our Father in heaven doesn't use fear. He doesn't say be godly or else. Our Father does not use earthly reward. Do it and I will give you whatever that is that you want. And our Father in heaven certainly does not use shame. Be godly or you're. What you're about to see in this passage before us in Colossians 3 is you're about to see what just about every ounce of what I call grace motivators towards godliness. All the things that God uses, the grace motivators, to inspire us and encourage us and spur us on to godly lives. You with me? But before we get there, I want to ask a couple of important questions of the passage. And here's the first question that I want to ask. If you've got it in front of you, and I will bring it up on the screen, what does ungodliness and godliness look like? What does it look like? I want to give you a picture of what those two things look like. And now, let me bring, let's start with ungodliness. What does ungodliness look like in the passage? And you'll see it there on the left-hand side, sinfulness or, or ungodliness. If you've got your Bible, you'll look at it from about verse 5. Ungodliness, it looks like sexual immorality. What is that? That is all sexual activity outside of marriage, and it's all uh, inappropriate sexual activity within marriage. Look at verse 5. It's impurity. That's the uncleanness associated with sexual immorality. Ungodliness, what does it look like? It looks like lust, which is strong, immoral sexual desires. It looks like evil desires, verse 5. It's those strong, immoral desires that go beyond the sexual. It looks like greed 
and it looks like anger, and it looks like rage, if you're down into verse 8 in the passage, and it looks like malice. Malice is that, that desire or that intent to really hurt someone, often physically. It looks like slander. It looks like filthy language, and if you look at verse 9, it looks like lying. That's what ungodliness looks like. Now, it's not, it's not an exhaustive list, but you can certainly see it's fairly, it's fairly wide in the spectrum, isn't it? And if you look at that list and you say, well, what's the plumb line? Is there, a, is there a thread that you could sort of put through all of those things, verse 5, verse 8, verse 9? Is there something that holds it together? And we could put it like this. Ungodliness is selfish self-centeredness. Ungodliness is selfish self-centeredness that makes all our desires and all our wants and all our feelings the very center of everything. And if someone or something gets in the way of that, we respond in anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and many other things as well. Ungodliness is self it's self-indulgence. It's self-giving. It's self-serving. It's self-fulfilling. And as you look at that list, I hope that you're saying to yourself, that stuff is vile. It's vile. Because it's vile to God. It's disgusting to God. And it should be to us as well. There's a little composite picture of ungodliness. What does godliness look like? If you could get sort of my uh, picture out of the way there, please, Marcus. There, there's, and look at the passage. In fact, there's one I left off there in, in, in verse 11. Starting in verse 11, it, there, there's, a, there's a way of equality as you look at all people within the body of Christ. So we could put at the top there really uh, equality. But starting uh, verse 12, look at, look at the picture. What does godliness look like? It looks like compassion. It looks like kindness. It looks like humility and gentleness and patience. It looks like bearing with one another. It looks like forgiveness and, and really sort of all summed up in love. Godliness is love. And if you look at that list again, if you're trying to put that little plumb line through the godliness, what does it sort of all hold together? If, 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 if ungodliness is self, what's godliness? It's other, isn't it? It's other. Uh, godliness is self-denying. It's other giving. It's other serving. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. And I want to ask you, which side, left or right, which side characterizes the pattern of your life this morning? Which side characterizes by way of pattern, your life this morning. Now, I hope if you sit here this morning and you say that you're a Christian, I hope that you would say that my life is characterized, not perfectly, of course, but my life is characterized by godliness. It is characterized by that right-hand side. I hope that's what you're saying. And I hope as you look at those two lists and you say, my life is patterned like that, but we can see all the evil that's intermingled in our good lives, can't we? But what we're saying is, as Christians, the trajectory, the pattern, the flow, the direction of our lives is godliness. Now, just to open it up slightly, have a look at verse 5 again. And just the first part, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your earthly nature. 
earthly nature could be translated sinful nature, depending on your translation. The Greek is the flesh. Put to death what's ever in your flesh. We understand, don't we, Christians, that, that, that though we've been born again by the Spirit of God, given new hearts to love and serve God, the old nature is still there, isn't it? The old self, the old you, um, it's still there. The, the old nature, I, I like to put it this way, the old nature is continually generating evil desires. And those evil desires that are generated by the flesh or the old self or the old nature, some of those evil desires, they remain in our minds and we never act on them. But so often we do act on those evil desires and when they, they come out, they, they wreak pain and suffering both on ourselves and those around us. So we've got to understand, Christians, that when it comes to killing sin and uh, putting sin to death, and, and getting rid of, as the passage says, we never do that in a final one-off, I've done it kind of way, do we? Like sin is dead. I've killed it. It's, it's finished. It will never come up again. It'll never rise from the dead again, right? Never like that. You've got to understand that the sinful nature is always generating these evil desires and that will never stop, never, ever, 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 ever stop until we get a new body one day when Christ returns. So here's the thing, Christian. It's a keep putting to death. Keep on doing it. Keep on getting rid of. And again, and again, and again. And keep putting on. Keep putting on Christ. Keep putting on the clothes of righteousness. Keep putting on the clothes of godliness. It's always, it's a continual putting to death and a putting off. That make sense? hope so. Here's the second question I want to ask. What will not produce godliness? What will not produce godliness? Now, if you've got your Bible, I want you to see the answer. It's a very, very important context. Why I read verse 23. Here's what will not. Regulations. You see that? Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if, if you try and keep external rules, if you try and keep human traditions, if you try and keep um, old covenant regulations, if you try and keep the, the, sort of the non-moral do's and don'ts, they will not produce godliness. They will not restrain any of those evil desires generated by your flesh. And when you keep such external human old covenant sort of regulations, they do not necessarily show that you are godly. So in the context of Colossians, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying you can get circumcised. You can be baptized. You can... Keep the Sabbaths. You can keep the old covenant festivals and whatnot. You can restrain yourself from eating certain foods. You can stop drinking certain drinks. But none of those things will stop you from restraining those evil desires within you. They have no power to do that. And they do not necessarily mean that you are godly. Now let me just bring it up into the modern day context. And I'll just put up this list that I showed you from last week just to bring it into into today, 
what sort of things are we talking about today? So, so, so if, if, if you're a Christian that says you don't listen to non-Christian music and you don't go to clubs and you don't go to the movies and you don't watch Disney, you don't drink alcohol, you don't watch TV, as a lady, you don't wear pants, you don't wear makeup, you wear a hat, you don't play sport on a Sunday, you don't go to the shops, you have communion every week, you sing only hymns, you say grace before you eat, and as a Christian family, you have devotions every single day. I'm not saying they're bad things, but please understand two things. One, one, they will not stop. <laughs> they will not, they have no power to stop the evil desires, right? There's no ways you can restrain your sensual desires through those things. And even if you keep all of those things, it does not mean that you are necessarily a godly person. Why? Because they are externals. They're, they're external things. But please don't hear me say necessarily that they are wrong. Yet, <laughs> Mm, let me give you this one. Let me give you one more. Look at verse 23. Notice what he says. It's harsh treatment of the body will not make you more godly either. If you do some reading in history, there was an old church father by the name of Origen. Origen. At one stage in his life, he was so disgusted with his sexual immorality that he had himself emasculated. If you don't know what the word emasculated means, you can ask someone privately afterwards, but you'll get the drift. Many years ago now, and I'm talking about many years ago, in my early years of my walk with Jesus, I was so disgusted with myself, I was so disgusted with my sin, that I took an object, I heated it on the stove, and then I plunged it into my flesh. I still have the mark. And here's the thing, it didn't produce any godliness. You know what it did? It gave me severe pain. And I still got the scar. We've really got to feel with people like Origen, don't we? I mean, shame, poor guy. And maybe you're sitting here saying, wow, poor, poor Paul. Well, whatever, please don't try these things at home. See, here's what you've got to understand. External rules, external regulations, the non-moral do's and the don'ts, the rituals and all that sort of stuff, they will not produce godliness. Fear does not produce godliness. Earthly reward does not produce godliness. And shame certainly doesn't as well. So, hopefully now you're ready for the third question. What are the grace motivators for godliness? What are the grace motivators? I'm going to put a statement up for you. I'm going to read it twice. Make just a comment about it, and then I'm going to give you Five grace motivators that come out of the passage. Those things that will truly motivate you towards godliness. So let's put up the statement. If you're going to keep putting sin to death, and you're going to keep clothing yourself with godliness, or let me put it into Titus' words, if you're going to keep saying no to ungodliness and yes to godliness, you need to set your heart and mind on certain things and then act accordingly. I want you to notice as you look at that, there are things that you have to do. If you're going to be godly, you have to do certain things. And there are two. One, you need to set your heart and your mind on certain things, and then you need to act accordingly. You do need to act. But the act comes from what your heart and mind is set on. Godliness does not just come out of the sky. It doesn't come by spiritual osmosis. It comes as we set our heart and mind on certain things, and then we act in accordance with that. 
You with me? Let me see how this unpacks in our passage. Here's the first grace motivator, your union with Jesus or your union with Christ. Got your Bible? Have a look at Colossians chapter 3 and the first four verses. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you, will also, you, you also will appear with Him in glory. Now look at this carefully. Look at verse 1. You need to set your heart and your mind on being raised with Christ, right? Go down to verse 3, and you need to set your heart and your mind on that you died with Christ and that your life is hidden with Him. Here's what Paul is saying, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you died on that cross with Him, meaning that your old, godless, dead self, that part that hated God, didn't want to know God, didn't want to follow God, that, that uncircumcised bit of you, that died on the cross with Jesus. And when you rose, when he rose from the dead, when you put your faith in Jesus and he rose from the dead, then you rose to a new life with him. You died with him. You were raised with him. You live in Christ. He lives in you. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. What Paul is talking about is your union with Jesus. In other words, by faith, we are completely joined to Jesus in everything about Him. And what happens to Him happens to us. If you went back into Ephesians chapter 5, you might remember that Jesus uses, or Paul, the apostle, uses the illustration of marriage. That when a man and a woman are joined together, the two become one. And that's a picture of Jesus and His church. That when you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus Christ unites Himself to His Church, he unites himself to you, and the two become one. So that's what hidden means. If your life is hidden in Christ, it means you are you're one with him, you're joined to him, you're inseparable from him. Which 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 obviously means whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. Where he goes, we go. Uh, have a look at it. This is it's incredible. Look at verse four again. Is just a slightly different nuance on it. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Why will you appear in glory with Him? Why? According to that verse. Because you are, you're one with Him. Yes, you're joined to Him. Which means that where He is, you are. Where He will be, you will be. Where He goes, you go. Where you are, He's with you. The two become one. Now here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, set your heart and your mind on this truth. Set your heart and mind on your union with Jesus Christ. Meditate on it because that is the grace motivator for your godliness. Let me turn it this way. In other words, Christian, live in such a way that reflects your union with Christ. That's what Paul is getting at. Let me put it one other way. If you and I are joined to the glorious, sinless Son of God, don't we want to live in a way that reflects that? 
You see? Our union directly affects our godliness. Who we're connected to drives the lives that we live. Now, just in case this is not clear, let me open this up just a little bit further. Take a look at this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. So here's Paul again. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, look at verse 20 and ask yourself this question. Why? What is the motivator for honoring God with your body? What's the motivator? And if, just in case you missed it, I'll flick back into verse 19. What's the motivator for honoring God with your body? Because you are what? Because you're a, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is in you who has joined you to Christ. Remember Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's Paul's point. If you and I are joined to Jesus Christ, why would we want to go and join ourselves to anything that is sexually immoral? Why would we do that? Let me push a little bit further. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Listen to this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what is fellowship? Or what, or, what, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will live with them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people. You see it? In other words, if you and I are unioned with Christ, if we're joined to Him, if we're superglued to Him, if we're one with Him, if we cannot be separated from Him, why do we go and unite ourselves to things and people that stand in such opposition to Him? Why do you go and unite yourself to stuff that is so ungodly when you're united to Jesus Christ? Now, Paul is not saying don't associate with non-Christians. Of course not. We, we, we need to win them for Jesus and evangelize them and all that. But what Paul is saying is you don't, get, um, uh, you don't want to be intimately associated with, connected to people that are vile or doing vile things or stand in opposition to Christ. Don't unite yourself to something that is in direct contrast to, the, to, to, to your union with the beautiful, precious, glorious, lovely Jesus Christ. If we are joined to the most beautiful, pure, godly, perfect Jesus Christ, why would we want to then go and unite to something that is so impure? You see it? What Paul is saying is the extent to which you truly know that you're one with Christ, joined together with Him, cannot be separated, whichever way you want to put your fingers, when you, to the extent to which you know your union with Christ is the extent to which you will keep putting to death and keep putting on godliness. Does that make sense? That's grace motivator number one. Here's number two, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now, look at verse 6. Because of these, what's, what's these? That's the, 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 the ungodliness of verse 5. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, please understand. 
Paul is not using the fear, Paul is not using the wrath of God as a fear factor to motivate Christians to godliness. Just the opposite. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1? There is, there, there is now therefore no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ has taken the wrath of God for you. So here's what Paul is doing in this verse. He's not using it as a fear factor. He's using it as a grace factor. What he's saying to Christians is this. Christian, remember, from what have you been saved? Christian, what have you been saved from? Remember that you've been saved from the wrath of God. Remember that Jesus Christ took all the punishment for you at the cross. Remember that He satisfied the wrath of the God, the wrath of the Father for you. In view of Christ taking the wrath of God on your sin for you, keep putting to death your sin and keep putting on godliness. The wrath of God is not a fear motivator for Christians. It's a grace motivator because Christ took it for you. It's because you're now no longer under the wrath of God that you want to live the life that God has called you to. Let me put it one other way. If Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for you on the cross, do you want to keep living in a way that displeases Him? Your union with Christ, the wrath of God, third motivator, new life in Christ, new life. So look at verse 7. Paul says, you used to walk in these ways, obviously reflecting on verse 5 and reflecting on verse 8. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Down to verse 9. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, not a difficult question to answer. If you look at that list again of sinfulness or ungodliness and godliness over there, which side reflects your old life before you were a Christian? Which side reflects your old life? Old life? Right? New life? There. Paul says, you, 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 you used to live like that. You used to walk that way. But actually, what God has done, He's given you what? A new life with a new power and a new spirit to live like that. What Paul is saying is this. If you're new in Christ, if you've been renewed in Christ, if you've been recreated in Christ, then godliness is the new way of living. That's what the new life is for. In other words, to say that I've been born again by the Spirit of God, to say that I'm I have a new life in Christ to say that I'm renewed, to say that I'm recreated, that I've been refashioned in His image. And to live in a pattern like that is completely incompatible. It cannot be. It cannot be. Let me give you the, uh, the fourth one. And this is beautiful. 
Your first motivator towards godliness, your union with Christ. Your second one, the wrath of God in the sense that you're no longer under the wrath of God. The third one is that you've got a new life in Christ. And number four is your identity, your identity. So look at this. Look at the start of verse 12. Just the first part. We'll come to the other bit. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Christian, look at that first part. Who are you? Who are you? Chosen? Holy? And? Loved. Who are you? You've been chosen in Christ. You've been chosen in Christ to be holy before the creation of the world, and you are dearly loved. A sovereign Father has loved you, united him, united you to Himself through His Son. He has saved you from the wrath of God. He's given you a new life. And what Paul is saying is that you need to think about this, meditate on this, Chew on this, set your heart and your mind on this. In other words, as you get this and breathe this and meditate and it becomes part of you, it is Paul saying, love who you are. Love who you are. It is the profound knowledge of who you are in Christ, chosen, holy, love. Let me just, I think I've got it here. A, let me just flick over to Ephesians quickly. Here's a, Paul says the same thing in a slightly different way. Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5. See if you can pick out all the words. For he, what? He chose us. There it is. He chose us when? Before the creation of the world. Chose us to be what? To be holy and blameless in his sight. And then what comes next? In, in love, he predestined us to adoption, to sonship, to daughtership, to Jesus Christ in accordance with his plan. Can I put it this way? Christian, do you know who you are? A chosen, loved child of God, recreated for godliness in Jesus Christ. You see it? It's identity that drives godliness. And I'll give you one more. Christ-likeness. So we go back to verse uh, 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, right, here it comes, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, one last time at my list. Have a look at those two lists again. But I particularly want you to look at the right-hand side. Look at the godliness side. And let me ask you this question. Where do you see every single one of those godly characteristics? Where do you see them most beautifully displayed? Where do you see them most beautifully exemplified? Where do you see them most extraordinarily embodied? Where do you see them lived in perfection? Where do you see it? In where? 
in Jesus Christ. That's what he lived. He lived compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, patience, bearing with us, forgiving and loving. That's how he lived. But please understand something. He didn't just live this when he was on earth. He continues to live this way. In heaven. Our great high priest in heaven continues to, to, to pour out his compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another and forgiving and loving. He did that on earth and he's doing that from heaven, mediated to us by his spirit through his word. But let's just for a moment think about his godliness on earth. Oh my goodness. Do you remember the compassion of Jesus? When that leper came to him, that unclean, filthy leper falls before Jesus. Says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And it says in Mark chapter 1 or 2, it says, filled with what? Compassion. He says, I'm willing. And he touches a man and he heals him. Do you remember the kindness of Jesus as he dealt with the outcasts and the, and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners and all the rest of them? Man, the humility of Jesus that he would come from heaven to become a man, not just a man, but a servant, not just a servant, but to a bond slave even to death on a cross, that he would leave all the glories of heaven behind, give that all up so that he can save us. That's humility. Do you remember his gentleness with his disciples? Oh, my goodness, they were a fumbling self lot, weren't they? You remember them? Who's going to be the greatest? Jesus talked about going to the cross, and they're battling to see who's going to get to the left side and the right side. Oh, he bears with them, and he's patient with them, and he's gentle with them. And oh my goodness, on the cross, it is done, and it's finished. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And no greater love than this that a man would lay down a life, lay down his life for another. But it's this is love, not that we love God, that but God loved us, that in our sin, in our death, in our deadness, in our uncircumcision of our hearts while we were powerless, while we were godless, while we were helpless. The Father sent His Son in love. You see what Paul is saying? It should be that as we look at the life of Christ lived, embodied, should, as Christians, motivate us, inspire us, spur us on to be more like the Lord who came and lived for us and loved us. So here's how Paul sort of sums it all up together. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, follow my example, he's writing to the Corinthian church, follow my example as I follow thee. What? Example of Christ. Well, what's the example of Christ? Well, there, there it is. That's the example. Okay, let me, uh, whew, time to wrap up. Let, just keep that screen on for me, please, if you could. Here's the question. How do you keep putting sin to death? How do you keep getting rid of? How do you keep putting on godliness? How do, you, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you keep saying no, yes, no, yes, 
No, yes. No to ungodliness. Yes to godliness. No, yes. No, yes. No, yes. No, yes. Putting off, putting on, getting rid of, putting to death. How, how does that happen? You've got to set your heart and your mind on these five things. Set your heart and mind on your union with Christ. Set your heart and mind on your redemption from the wrath of God. Set your mind and your heart on the new life in Christ. Set your heart on the identity that Christ has given you in Him. And look at Him. And look at Him. Look at His life. Look, look at how He lived. Look. Look at His godliness. And let these things motivate you. Let them. How do, you, how do you set your heart and mind on them? Think about them. Meditate on them. Chew on them. Get them deep down, right, into the very crevice of every part of your heart. Sit on them and sit on them and pray on them and talk to the Lord about them. Get them inside. And here's how it's going to work then these things are set on by your heart and mind, they will, they will inflame your will. They will activate your will, if you want to put it that way. It will activate your will to go, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And when you've said yes to something you should have said no of, you're going to repent and turn back to the Lord, and you're going to keep going again and again and again. So let me finish it this way. And there it is. Godliness. Not by fear. Not by earthly reward. Not by shame. Not by human traditions and human regulations and external rules. Not by old covenant regulations. Not trying to burn your body or cut it up. By grace. By grace. And there they are. Continue to dwell on them as I ask the music team to come and join us.